It is so good, so good to worship God together. Welcome to this time of worship on this Memorial Day weekend. Well, Walter Moore and his wife were really worried because their son missed his 1 a.m. curfew. But they really had cause for worry when he came in at 2 a.m. and announced, Mom and Dad, I'm home. And whatever the punishment is, it was worth it. We all struggle with worry from time to time. In fact, most of us have had severe anxiety at one time or more in our lives. And many of us battle worry and anxiety practically every single day. There are many different levels of it, all the way from butterflies in the stomach to sleepless nights to panic attacks where the fear becomes overwhelming and we're debilitated and have trouble basically functioning day by day. One of the specialists at the Mayo Clinic, Dr. W.C. Alvarez, who is a stomach specialist, wrote, 80% of the stomach disorders that come to us are not organic but functional. Wrong mental and spiritual attitudes throw functional disturbances into digestion. Most of our ills are caused by worry and fear, he says. And he went on to say that people who don't know how to fight worry tend to die young. Well, today, as we continue in this series, When Life is Tough, I want us to talk about this very common struggle that so many of us have with anxiety and worry. And we're going to look into God's Word for an amazing prescription on what we can do about that. It is found, and to many of you this is a very familiar passage, I hope it's one that some of you have committed to memory. And, and if you haven't, I, I think this is one of so many hundreds of verses that would be great to commit to memory. I want us to look at this together, and I'm going to ask that we would read this out loud together at all of our locations. I'm kind of curious as to which actual congregation can read this the loudest and the best, all right? So we're going to have a little competition here. Philippians chapter 4, and let's read it together at, out loud at all of our locations. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Wow, good job. Now, I'm not sure, but I think the Greenbush congregation won that contest, I believe. <laughs> good work. Boy, do not be anxious about anything. If there was ever a commonly violated command, that's got to be it. Dr. Paul Meyer and Dr. Frank Minnerth of the Minnerth and Meyer Clinic, one of the most respected clinics in all of America, said the number one mental disorder in America is anxiety. 
So let's talk for a few minutes here in getting started. Before we get to the prescription, let's talk about why in the world is that true? Why, with all of the amazing promises, with all that we know as Christians, with all that God said in his word, and why in our culture, in our society, with everyone, believers and non-believers, why is this the number one problem in America? Well, I want to mention a few things that I, may, I think may contribute to that. One is the ambiguous blessing of more. Now, why do I call it the ambiguous blessing of more? Well, here's why. Because we tend to think that when I get more stuff, I'm not going to worry nearly as much, right? But what we find is that the more we have, the more we have to protect, the more we have to buy insurance on, the more we have to think about and try to figure out how are we going to add to this and so on. The Bible says in Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 12, the sleep of a laborer is sweet whether he eats little or much, but the abundance of a rich man permits him no sleep. I was talking to a guy recently who said he and his wife had lived in a house way below their means for years. It was one of those fixer-upper houses, you know. He said, the problem is I'm not that kind of guy. I don't know how to fix things. And so I've been really stressed out wondering how am I going to get ever get this house fixed up. And so finally, he and his wife bit the bullet and decided to sell the fixer-upper and buy a brand new house in this really posh new neighborhood. He said, so we did that. But then I looked at my old junker of a car in the driveway, and I said, this will never do. I can't have a car like that in a neighborhood and in a house, with a house like this. And so he said, we went out and bought a new car. And then I knew my taxes would go up, but I had no idea how much more they would be. And so I was stressed about that. And then he said, we looked at our old furniture in that new house, and it just didn't look right. And so we went out and bought a whole new house full of furniture. And he said, Rex, to be honest, I've been lying awake at night wondering, how am I going to pay for all this? And so I just traded one set of worries for another. I think another thing that contributes to the anxiety today is media hype, media hype. You know, 100 years ago, there were lots of things we didn't know. But today, because we have immediate access to information, we have new things to worry about. We struggle with, we worry about tensions in, you know, the Ukraine and the Balkan region. We wonder about continuing distress in Afghanistan. We look at the fluctuating mar global, you know, market, stock market. And there's all these things that 100 years ago, we just wouldn't have known about, really, at least not in real time, and so we wouldn't have had them to worry about. Now, you need to understand one thing, that the media do a wonderful job communicating many times, and we have some wonderful people involved in our local media, our local news stations and radio and so on in our congregation. They do an awesome job. But you need to know that the, the media personnel are under a lot of pressure to make things sound really spectacular and often more ominous than they are. And so they try to hype things a little bit because they want to get ratings, they want to sell advertising. That's just the nature of that. That's just the way 
it goes. And so media hype is definitely a problem. Here are just a few of the headlines that I wrote down from this week. You'll recognize some of these. Thai military seizes power in coup. As elections loom, fighting turns deadly in Ukraine. These are all just from this week. Deadly explosions in China's west. North and South Korea, naval vessels exchange fire. Pakistani troops take control of militant-dominated area. Trouble with veterans' health care. These are all just headlines. Grandchildren of divorce, one article. The effects that linger on. Shen student killed in car crash. Tornado rips through Dwaynesburg. I mean, just the headlines are enough to send you into depression. Did you see that story this week about iPads and children? Parents have really been excited about the potential of iPads to help teach their children, you know, be a teaching tool and to help them, you know, kind of babysit the kids. Well, now there's a number of studies that are showing that children aged two and three who've kind of been raised on iPads It's really inhibiting their fine motor and basic motor skills. The study said some of them hardly know how to hold a crayon or a pencil because they're just accustomed to punching numbers. Just when parents thought they had a great device to help, now they've got to worry about their kids' development being hindered. All kinds of things that the media makes us aware of, and it makes us worry. I think another factor is smaller families. Smaller families. Now, I don't know if this is evident to you or not, but I tend to notice that people who have one or two children tend to worry more about them than those who have big families. Now, follow me here, all right? If I were to ask you, if you're a parent, I would say, what is your number one worry? Most of you say, my child. If I were to ask you, grandparents, what's your number one worry? You'd say, my grandchildren. But I've noticed that the fewer you have, the more you tend to worry about them. Have you ever watched this with families? You'll notice a a mom who has her first child, just one child. That little child spits out the pacifier. It falls in the dirt. What does she do? She takes that pacifier. She goes and boils it disinfects it. She reads her book about what to do after birth to make sure that there's no problem with anything else she needs to do. And then finally, very reluctantly, she'll put it back in the child's mouth, still worrying that there may be some residual germs lingering on that thing somewhere. Second child comes along, drops the pacifier in the dirt, She puts it under the faucet for a couple of seconds, gives it back. By the third or fourth child, that pacifier falls in the dirt. I mean, it's nasty. She shakes it off a couple of times, wipes it on her clothes, and pops it back in the kid's mouth. You worry less about kids the more you have. Seriously, some of the most stressed out parents I know are those who have one, maybe two kids. Some of the most chilled parents I know are those who have a house full. Because they've learned, I guess, to worry a little less about each one. This interesting Bible passage, Psalm chapter 127, like arrows in the hands of a warrior are sons born in one's youth. Blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. Maybe God gives us 
a lot of children so that worry will be a little bit less for each one. I think another reason we worry is modern technology. When our daughter Allie was an infant, we got one of those child monitors. Most of you have used those. There's ones that just have the sound. There's ones that have sound and sight. We got one that was just this audio monitor because we wanted to be able to hear what was going on in her crib and her cradle. But you know all that does is creates more worry. You wake up in the middle of the night, you can't hear anything. <gasps> What's wrong? We got to go in and check on her. If you didn't have the monitor, you probably wouldn't think anything about it. You'll think if there's a real problem, she'll be screaming her head off, and we'll know there's something wrong, and we'll go in and, and check it out. Now, inventions definitely make life easier. I think we'd all agree with that. There are some things that we just love. We're glad they've been invented. But what we tend to do is we try to cram more in. It's not unusual for someone to say, well, I get off work early today, 3.45, but I've got a hair appointment in half moon at 4 p.m. And I uh, hope to go to our kids' ball game at 5 o'clock because we wanted to get, get over to mom's house by 7 and have dinner together because we want to be to bed by 9 because tomorrow's a huge day. After school tomorrow, we're going to go visit the other grandparents in Cleveland, and it's just go, 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 and we have to wonder after a while, were we really designed for this? Were we really designed to go at such a breakneck pace? I think another factor contributing is experience. Now, when I was young, I thought my parents were worry warts. I really did. I mean, they'd say things that I thought were crazy. I thought they were worrying about silly, silly things. And I thought that, you know... I'm going to worry less when I get older because I'm going to realize how silly all these things are. Did your parents tell you, better be careful, you're going to poke an eye out? Did they tell you that? Am I the only one? Yeah. And you think that is crazy advice. That is so silly. When I got a BB gun at the age of nine, my mom's biggest worry, you're going to shoot your eye out. And I thought, how can you possibly shoot an eye out with a BB gun? You think I'm going to be aiming it at myself? But, you know, as I've gotten older, I've met people who've poked an eye out. I met a guy in Dayton, Ohio, teaching classes. I met a guy, he had one eye, he had a patch over, and I said, hey, after I talked to him, what man, what happened? He said, I shot my eye out with a BB gun. That is a true story. And so the older you get, you realize, you know what, through experience, things do happen. My parents always said, oh, before you drive back to school, you better be sure you're rested. You could go off the road. I thought that was the craziest advice. Why are you so worried about that? But today, I know of many people who've driven off the road because they were just too tired. They should have rested like their parents said, Right? So we learn through experience that things do happen. And one final thing I'll mention is concern about doomsday being near. I think a lot of people are feeling, as they look at the signs of the times, that, you know, things are beginning to heat up. Maybe the end of the world is near. The world as we know it is going to change. Recently, I mentioned doomsday preppers. 
right? People who are digging tunnels in the ground and storing away loads of food and water and going away into the mountains and getting generators so they can live self-sufficiently if there should be a crisis. Now, I want to pause here before we transition and look at the prescription that Scripture gives us for all these things. And I want to say, I think we need to recognize that there is a huge, and I mean a huge difference between appropriate concern for the future and worry. Now, here's the way I delineate those. And by the way, before I tell you that, let me say, the Bible is into good preparation. In fact, I would even say to you, the Bible is a preparation manual. It begins with birth. It says, raise up a child in the way he should go. When he's old, he'll not depart. The Bible says, go to the ant, O sluggard. Observe her ways and be wise, which having no chief officer or ruler, prepares her food in the summer and gathers her provision in the harvest. The Bible is all into appropriate preparation. Jesus himself said in the New Testament, which of you would Start building a tower without first sitting down and counting the cost. Lest you get halfway through it and be embarrassed that you can't finish this project. So let's be clear on one thing. The Bible does not call us, when it tells us don't be anxious, it's not calling us to a carefree and haphazard lifestyle where every day we just wake up in a new world, we have no plans for anything. That, that's just not what the Bible teaches. What's the difference between appropriate concern and inappropriate anxiety? Okay, let me give you one of the ways that I have distinguished that. Concern focuses on probable difficulty and takes action. Concern focuses on probable difficulty. Things that are very likely to occur and takes action. Worry focuses on improbable difficulties and takes no action. And often, if we're being honest, we're focusing on improbable difficulties and we're not really doing anything about it. Why? Why is that? Because it's easier to worry than do something. It's easy. Have you ever been cold during the middle of the night? I mean, you're just honestly too cold. It's a cold night outside, and you're just freezing. You're shivering underneath the covers. And you know that right there, 10 feet away in that closet is a quilt, blanket, you'd be fine. What do you do? Do you get up and get it? No. You just lie there all night and worry about it. That's all you do. You ever done that? Why are we? It's easier not to take action. I have to get up. I'd have to get cold. I'd have to get out of this comfortable bed. Why do people not do anything about bad marriages? Because it's easier just to worry about it than go to a counselor or get in a small group that could help. Why do people worry about their fight because it's easier just to worry about it than it is to create an honest budget and live within the parameters of that budget? That's why. It's easier just to sit and worry about these things than to actually take action, to be responsible, and really do something about it. So what's the prescription for all this? It's obviously a real problem. The statistics are off the charts. Anxiety is at an all-time high in America. But what does the Bible tell us 
to do about this. I think you're going to be amazed if you've never seen this prescription before. God is amazing. This is better than the prescription of any psychologist you could ever find. How can we conquer worry? I want to give you four quick things right from God's word that we can do. Number one, I think this is A in your notes. We can acknowledge that worry is a sin and choose by God's grace to conquer it. Now, I think we have to begin right there because I think that many of us, when this topic comes up, we kind of sheepishly grin and go, yeah, I worry quite a bit, but, you know, I'm not a drunkard. You know, I, I, I don't steal. You know, I'm not a liar. <laughs> you know, I'm not an adulterer, but, I, yeah, I worry. It's, it's like a respectable Christian sin. But I, I, I just want to say to us today... Uh, at all of our locations, listen, the same Bible that says don't get drunk says don't be anxious. They're both in the imperative mood in the Greek text. They're both commands. No, no real difference there in the nature of it. The same Bible that says don't lie, don't steal, says don't be anxious. So we need to just acknowledge up, the front, up front that this is a real problem. It's not something we should just wink at it. It's, it's a sin because worry is a failure to trust God with the details of our lives. Oh, we know the Bible says, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not to your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him. He'll direct your paths. But worry says, no, I'm not so sure. I, I think I need to take control of that and be general manager of the universe when it comes to my own life. We, we, know, we know that Jesus said, hey, take no thought for clothing. Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They toil not, neither do they spin. And yet I send to you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Hey, if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is, and tomorrow's cast into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O ye of little? Therefore, take no thought, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? Well, no, I think I really do need to worry about that, Jesus, because I'm not sure I can really trust you to take care of that for me and really be my provider. Worry is a sin. We need to just call it what it is, and it shows a basic lack of trust in God. The old Anglo-Saxon word for worry meant to strangle or to choke. And here's the thing about worry. God has designed for you an abundant life. He wants you to live every day in the fullness of his spirit, bathed in his word, full of his spirit, walking every day in his will and purpose he has for you. But worry comes along like that parable Jesus taught where the seed was sown among thorns. And it came up, but the thorns choked it to death. That's what worry does. Worry chokes out the abundant life. We've got to begin right there, friends. We've got to call it what it is and seek by God's grace to overcome it. Secondly, we, don't, we, we need to learn to pray about everything. Pray about everything. It's essentially uh, what this says. Verse 6 goes on. But in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. 
that's more than a surface prayer. That sounds to me like a developed prayer life. The word for prayer there carries the connotation of adoration. So it's like that Acts acrostic in a way. You begin with adoration. The word petition there means specific request of God. And then we're to pray with thanksgiving also as we continue in our prayer. That's more than a surface prayer. That's more than prayer by rote. That's more than five minutes of prayer thrown up during a time of desperation. I think God is calling us here to a life of daily prayerful intimacy with him. You remember when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane? The Bible says he left eight of his disciples there toward the gate. If you read the text carefully, he said, I want you to stay here, eight of them, and I want you to watch and pray. And if you read it carefully, you'll notice that he took Peter, James, and John, that sort of inner circle, and he went further. He went further into the Garden of Gethsemane during his time of agony, and he said, all right, I want you to stay here, and I want you to watch and pray. But do you know what the Bible says next Jesus did? He had left some out there to watch and pray. He had taken some deeper to watch and pray. And then the Bible says, oh, I like this phrase. It says he went, catch this phrase, further still. Ooh, that's good. Jesus went further still and fell down on his face and poured his heart out in an agonizing prayer to the Father. Can I say to you something, brothers and sisters? You are going to hit some seasons in life where if you don't learn to go further still, you're really going to be gripped by anxiety. I received a letter that blessed me more than you can imagine recently. I didn't recognize the name. The name is Judy Harrell, and I received uh, Judy's permission to share this letter with you. Judy Harrell lives in Alpena, Michigan, of all places. Alpena, Michigan. And let me share with you what she wrote here in this, in this letter she sent. Pastor Rex Keener, you don't know me. I'm a part of the online campus of Grace Fellowship. I was introduced to Grace Fellowship on April 29th, 2012 by Jamie Wapplehorst and have grown in the Lord by leaps and bounds. My husband and I received the Lord on August the 13th, 1984, while watching television. Not a Christian program by any means, she writes, but for some odd reason, the TV started flipping to TBN, where Dwight Thompson had a special message for my husband, Bill. Dwight looked into the camera, pointed his finger right at Bill and me, and said, Young man, you're contemplating suicide this night, but God has a plan for your life. End quote. The thoughts going through my mind were about how sad that would be for the family. I did not know he was talking to my husband, who was laid off. Bill fell to his knees and started sobbing. I joined him there as I realized he was the young man. We accepted Christ and have not looked back, been criticized and kicked by family and friends, but our hands are still on the plow. I love that phrase Judy used, our hands are still on the plow. She goes on to say how they've gotten involved in a local church, but during this particular season of life, they're unable to attend a local church 
for reasons she's about to explain. Bill has been totally bedbound since 2005 in hospice care since August 6, 2011, when the doctor told us he would be gone within two hours after taking him off life support. 31 months later, he's still here at home holding on to the fact that God still has a purpose for his life. Bill has had a few major heart attacks since then, but his DNR, do not resuscitate. So our family sits and prays with him, reading Bible verses and singing wonderful hymns during these times. About a week later, when he's gained some strength, he says, I tell you, I'm not staying there until I see the face of Jesus. So that explains the season of my life, Pastor Rex. Our family and friends joke and say God isn't ready for him yet, but in reality, little do they know God isn't finished with him yet. Bill loves to talk to anyone about the Lord in the Bible. Final paragraph. That is my story. I hope it explains why I so appreciate Jamie for showing me the site and Grace Fellowship. When Bill is up to watching, I take the laptop into our bedroom so we can go to church together again. I don't keep Grace Fellowship a secret either. I tell everyone about the site. I'm doing my best to live what I'm learning And like I said, I'm learning a lot in all caps. Maybe one day I'll be able to walk through the doors of Grace Fellowship and meet you. But if not, I know we will meet in heaven. May God bless the work of your hands in Christian love. Judy Harrell. There's a person who's learned to go further still through one of the most wrenching experiences life could ever throw at you. So learn to pray about everything. But third, see in your notes, focus your thoughts on what is positive and true. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to tell you, if there was ever a prescription for helping you overcome worry, I would really urge you to listen to this one. So much of our feelings in this world, so much of of how we're feeling about things has to do with what we focus our thoughts on. But imagine the average American's day. No wonder they feel anxious. They've got their alarm clock set to music mode, and so they wake up to some song like Highway to Hell or something like that. It's blaring, and so they get up to that. They go in the kitchen and get some cereal and put some milk on it and begin to sit down, and they turn on the TV to Bad Morning America. It's like they don't have enough stress in their own life. They've got to get in on the stress of other people and what's happening in other people's lives. Oh, okay, after that, they get ready, they get in their car, and they start driving to work. Now, there's an edifying experience for you. It is stressful. People are mad. They look at the people's faces around them in these cars. They're miserable because 80% of Americans hate their job. So they're going to this job that they hate, and then they get to work, and things. this is just the start of the day. Things aren't getting off to a good start. We've got to learn to take control of our thought life. Here's a verse that we did not read earlier, but I wonder if we could look at this together. I'm just going to read it, and I want you to notice it. It's Philippians chapter 4 and verse 8. Philippians 4 and verse 8. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, 
If anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Let me tell you something. Your contentment in this life is not primarily a matter of external circumstances. It is primarily a matter of your internal focus. And so many times when I've been stressed out, I've decided, shoot, just to take this Bible seriously. Just to do what it says to do. It says think about these things. It says pray with thanksgiving. It says rejoice always. So sometimes I just say, look, I'm just going to do that. And you would not believe how many times that has helped me when I was feeling overwhelmed with stress and anxiety. Sometimes I'll just do something like this. I'll walk through the alphabet with things I'm thankful for. I'll say I'm thankful, A, for America, land of the free, home of the brave. I'm thankful for the Bible, lamp to my feet, light to my path. I'm thankful for, just make things up, coffee, so I can have a caffeine buzz every day. I'm thankful for my dog, Buddy the Wonder Dog. I'm thankful for E, energy level, where I can get a lot of stuff done. I'm thankful for friends who really add a lot of joy to life. Gee, Grace Fellowship. I'm thankful for Grace Fellowship, this church that has meant so much and where my whole family has has planted our lives. I'm thankful for history because I learned so much from it. I'm thankful for introverts so I don't have to talk all the time. Jay, I'm thankful for uh, homemade raspberry jam. I love it on toast, you know. Kay, I'm thankful for kids, my kids, Allie and Chase, who bring a lot of joy into our lives. L, I'm thankful for love, which is really the focus of both of the main commandments, love God, love people. M, I'm thankful for marriage, for Debbie, my soulmate and lifelong partner. N, I'm thankful for... Well, if we're making things up, I'm thankful for the NBA, so we still got some basketball this time of year. Oh, I'm thankful for oceans. Every time I go, I'm reminded the tide goes out, but it always comes back in. That's comforting somehow when the tide is out in my life. P, I'm thankful for pizza, the breakfast of champions. Q, I'm thankful for quinoa. That's South American grain that's full of protein. R, I'm thankful for rest. We really need it. S, I'm thankful for my Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. T, I'm thankful for truth that sets us free. U, I'm, I'm thankful for understanding, which undergirds relationships. V, I'm thankful for vitamins that help keep us healthy. W, thankful for clean water. I guess so many people... Don't have that, you know, around the world. X, I'm thankful for xylophones. Although they sound a little weird sometimes. Why? What can I put in there? Why? Thankful for yard work? Not. Z, I'm thankful for zebras because it gives me a Z word to throw in there. You know what? I'm feeling better already. Now, you ought to try that sometime. You ought to walk through and just practice gratitude. Practice what this passage says. Rejoice always. 
in everything give thanks. Think about what's positive, right, pure, etc. Dr. Robert Emmons, I don't know if you recognize his name. He is the world's leading expert on gratitude. If you Google gratitude, his name pops up first almost every time. He's the recognized expert, a professor at the University of California, Davis. He's done tons of experiments on gratitude. He's a psychology prof. And Dr. Emmons says, and I quote now, in our studies, we often have people keep gratitude journals for just three weeks. This is cool. And yet the results have been overwhelming. We've studied more than 1,000 people from ages 8 to 80 and found that people who practice gratitude consistently report a host of benefits. I won't read them all, but among them are stronger immune systems, lower blood pressure, more optimism and happiness, more ability to forgive. They're more outgoing. They feel less lonely and isolated and so on. Dr. Emmons goes on to say, and I'm still quoting now, grateful people are more stress-resistant. There's a number of studies showing that in the face of serious trauma, adversity, and suffering, if people have a grateful disposition, they'll recover more quickly. I believe gratitude gives people a perspective from which they can interpret negative life events and help them guard against post-traumatic stress and lasting anxiety. This is one amazing prescription. Do you ever try it? Do you ever just stop and give God thanks when you're feeling stressed out? It will immediately begin to relieve your anxiety. One final thing as we wrap up. Allow God's peace to guard your heart. Verse 7 says, And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Now think about how cool that is. Paul is writing the book of Philippians from what's called house arrest in Rome. Most scholars believe he was literally chained. He makes a reference to his chains in the book of Colossians, for instance, which was also written from that same period of house arrest, 60 to 62 A.D. And most of them believe that he was literally chained to a guard. A guard was right there watching over him. And every four hours or so, they would change guards. So there'd be a fresh guard there to watch over him. Probably someone from the Praetorian Guard, which he mentions earlier in this book. Now think about how amazing that is. Paul is saying here that just as these soldiers are guarding and watching over me 24-7, in a much more profound way than that, the Lord Almighty is guarding over and watching over my heart and he is bringing amazing peace to me even though my circumstances wouldn't call for peace right now because I'm soon going to be on trial for my life. That, my friends, is the proof in the pudding. I love how the psalmist put it in Psalm 27.1. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? So let me ask you as I close. Are you ground down by worry and anxiety? Please understand that God cares about every detail of your life. 
and he is watching over you. As a boy, we would watch Billy Graham on TV in our living room. And I'll never forget, one of the singers who made a huge impact on me was Ethel Waters. And she would often sing that song written by Sevilla Martin back in 1905 called His Eye is on the Sparrow. Why should I feel discouraged? Why should the shadows come? Why should my heart feel lonely and long for heaven and home? When Jesus is my portion, a constant friend is he. His eyes on the sparrow, and I know he watches me. I sing because I'm happy. I sing because I'm free. His eye is on the sparrow, and I know he watches me. Lord, would you help us to learn this prescription and live it well? Lord, thank you that you do care. Your eye is on us. You care about every detail of our lives. And I ask that you would use this to inspire us, to instruct us, to become people of gratitude, people of prayer, people who live daily above the piles of life. We commit ourselves to this purpose. We thank you for your love. And we thank you that your eye is always on us. In Jesus' name, amen.